Welcome to Grace Claremont. My name is Caleb Brazier, the campus pastor here at Grace Claremont. So Grace Church is one church in many different communities. So we have multiple campuses across Central Florida, uh, and each of the campuses have uh, a campus and teaching pastor. Uh, so I am here at Claremont. We're the newest campus here at Grace. We just got started in January. So thank you for coming and worshiping with us this morning. So one of the things that marks us here at Grace is that we are uh, expository teachers, each of our uh, campus pastors. And what that means is that we just preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible, believing that's the best way for us to be able to not only understand the heart of God because he's revealed himself to us through his word, but also for our own life, taking that, exposing the meaning and then applying it to our lives. Uh, And so we we are currently walking through the gospel of John. We began in January. We'll finish up around Easter next year. Um, And so we are currently walking through in this sermon series, chapters 10 through 12. Uh, and um, being unstoppable, what it means to be unstoppable in our own lives. This mission that Christ has commissioned us to do, namely the building of his church, is unstoppable. Not because of how great or gifted we are, but because of the one who promised it. As Jesus looked at Peter and he said, I will build my church. Christ said he is the one who will build it. We come alongside him, and that mission is in fact unstoppable as we come alongside what he has commissioned us to do. And so we are uh, beginning chapter 11 then this morning. Um, and looking back at last week as we rounded up in chapter 10, Jesus is wrapping up his public ministry here in the Gospel of John. He's got this final confrontation uh, coming up here in chapter 11, but it's on the heels of him continuing to teach things that the religious leaders did not like. So specifically uh, in chapter 10, verse uh, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Well, the Pharisees and Sadducees and Jewish leaders did not like that Jesus was equating himself with God the Father. And so they picked up stones to kill him. So this was the relationship between Jesus and the Jewish leaders at this point. Jesus says says things, the Jewish leaders want to kill him, all right? So it's not a great relationship, not necessarily healthy. Um, So this is kind of where we are leaving off. And so now it moves and transitions into this final sign, this final public sign that Jesus does in the Gospel of John. It's his greatest public sign that he does. It kind of all builds up and culminates in this point as we begin to transition now into the final week of Jesus' life in chapters 12 through 21. So this act, the death of Lazarus, and then ultimately the healing and raising of Lazarus, is what sets in motion, ultimately, Jesus' crucifixion. It was this act at the end where the Pharisees go, okay, this guy is doing unbelievable things. We have to stop him. The only way we can know how to stop him is to kill him. And so, in fact, it was the calling out of Lazarus from the tomb that was going to send Jesus to his own. And so we see now as these things set in motion, we're going to break this chapter because it's so dense and so good. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. We're breaking this chapter up in four different weeks. And so we're looking at the beginning of kind of just the setting and what it is that happened. And the next two weeks will be how Jesus then interacted with Mary and Martha, the the sisters of Lazarus, and then ultimately the resurrection itself as Jesus called Lazarus from the grave. So this morning we'll be in chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. If you grab one of the Bibles on the chair, those seats are not saved. Those are Bibles for you to be able to use in case you don't have one. Uh, if you don't have one with you, uh, if you don't have one at all, feel free to take that with you. That's our gift to you. Uh, so we'll be in chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, chapter numbers are the larger numbers, verse numbers are the smaller ones. So we'll be in chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. And the page is 767 and 768 uh, on the Bibles there on the chairs. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany was the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
Now it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and loved her sister and loved Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go and awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But now let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. And so the, the setting is set here. The stage is put forward for Jesus' greatest public miracle. But Jesus does some interesting things here. Right? I want you to just try to imagine. Imagine you had the ability to just heal people on a whim. Right? We've seen throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus heals people, not only there in person as he touches them, but also from a distance in chapter 5 with the official son. Jesus thought a thought miles away, and the boy was healed in a moment. That's the power that Jesus has over the curse of this world. He thinks from light years away, and creation has to obey. Imagine you had that kind of power, that kind of authority, to be able to heal whomever it is you wanted. And some of your closest friends, some of you, one of your closest friends, ran to you and said, the one that you love is sick, and he's about to die if we don't do something. And we've seen what you can do in the past. Is there anything you can do now? What would you do in that moment if you had the ability to heal and people that you love came and told you someone that you love was about to die, what would you do? I think for all of us, the, the reaction I would hope we would have as human beings is we would go, we would, we would heal them in a moment. We would say, that's the loving thing to do, to remove them from that pain. So isn't it interesting that's the exact opposite of what Jesus does? Why? Why would he do that? Why would those whom he loved come to him, tell him that someone that he loves is about to die, and he hears it and he waits? To ramp it up a bit, imagine being in Mary and Martha's shoes, these people who have followed Jesus and known and love him. Imagine there, as you're sitting there with your brother, and all of a sudden Lazarus begins to cough a little bit, but you've seen this come and go before, so you don't really think too much of it. And all of a sudden the cough turned into uh, a wheeze, 
The wheeze turns into the inability to be able to walk. The inability to walk then turns into the difficulty of even breathing. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, this is getting much more serious now. You're sitting here watching your brother begin to deteriorate in front of your eyes. But then what do you think? Oh, but no, 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 we know somebody. We know somebody that will be perfect for this situation. We've seen him do it before. We know him. We love him. He loves Lazarus. We will send someone to Jesus. And so you go, imagine in that scenario, you go and you send someone to Jesus. It's one that you've seen heal person after person. Remember, the healings that we see in the book of John are but a fraction of what Jesus did. John writes at the very end that if we saw, if all of the signs of Jesus were written down, there would not be enough books in the world to contain them. So they have seen miracle after miracle after miracle. And so you go with confidence. Okay, let's send to Jesus. We've seen what he can do and we know what he will do now. And notice even in the request in verse three, the person that is sent to Jesus doesn't tell him to come, doesn't ask him to say, Jesus, would you come and heal Lazarus? It's simply a declaration. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Probably under the assumption that once Jesus gets that knowledge, surely he will come. And so then the messenger comes back and you're sitting here waiting for the messenger to come back, assuming, well, surely Jesus will be coming with him. Once Jesus hears what's going on, he will come. And so you're there outside the door waiting, looking, and you see the messenger come, but he's alone. The messenger returns and you go, well, what, what happened? So we told him Lazarus was sick. And? And he didn't do anything. And you're confused, and you, and you go back, and you, you're there with your brother, and you see your brother deteriorating even quicker now. And every hour, you're walking back outside, looking through eyes, and wondering, is he coming now? Will he come now to heal our brother? And every time you go, you're met with disappointment as you see nothing but the horizon. There is no Messiah coming. Why? Why would Jesus do something like this? Or more specifically, why didn't Jesus do anything? Look at verses five and six. This is not only the key to this section, it's the key to the entire chapter. As Jesus says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So stop right there. Understand, we need to understand what Jesus' relationship was to these people. He loved them. And that word right here, love, is agape in the Greek. It's the, it's the most intense kind of love. And John is saying this was the relationship between Jesus and these three people. He loved them. So what does he do then as a result of that love? Look at verse 6. And the first word is so important. Verse 6, so. So. Because Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he was about to do something. Oh, well, was he going to run, find the nearest horse, and get as quickly to Lazarus as possible? Pull out his app, get an Uber to come pick him up so he could get there immediately to be able to heal him because he loved them so much? No, he loved them so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. John is connecting those two things, saying that because Jesus loved them so intensely, he waited. He didn't do anything. And he let them go through pain, and he let Lazarus experience death. What a strange thing. What drove him to do that? Why would he do that? Look at verse 4. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he said, This illness does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God. Jesus was thinking in different categories than we often do. 
As he was looking at this, his immediate knee-jerk reaction wasn't just for the quick appeasement of his people that he loved, but the thing that was driving him more than anything else in his entire life was to bring glory to his Father. That's why he was here. And that's why he had come to this earth, was to bring many sons to glory for the glory of his Father's name. He was there to glorify God, and ultimately that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so we see why would Jesus do this? Well, it's for the glory of God, that he loved those whom were there close to him, and so he waited. And this is true in our lives today as well, right? We often have to be hurt in order to be healed. We often have to be hurt in order to be healed. This isn't just true in emotionally or spiritually, but even in our physical lives, you look around. I mean, anybody ever been to the dentist? The place is terrible, and it hurts. It's, it's awful, but if you don't go, I can guarantee you your pain will be 10 times worse. That in order to be healed, you have to be hurt. Any surgeon knows this, right? My freshman year in high school, I was playing football, and I was a linebacker, and we were in practice, and I go to fill the gap, and I go to meet the fullback, Derek Jones, right there, number 36. He was a hefty guy, but I felt good about it, and so I go, I lower my shoulder, but it was weird because in this moment, I kind of just ran through him. I kind of, I was like, I've never quite felt that before. I turn around, start walking back to the huddle, and the coach looks at me with his head cocked to the side, and he said, Caleb, are you holding your arm like that on purpose? I said, what are you talking about? I look down, my one arm is regular, my other one is turned sideways and hanging down about six inches. I went, you know what, I'm not doing that on purpose. This doesn't seem very good. So I had dislocated, so when I hit the guy, my shoulder popped out of place and then rolled back down, which is completely dislocated. When it dislocated, it tore the labrum in my shoulder. All the ligaments around my shoulder were holding it place. So what then began to happen is then as I continued to play football, my shoulder would just pop out easier. Then spring rolled around. I picked up a baseball to play baseball. And the very first time I threw the baseball, reared back, chunked it, and my whole arm went numb. Because every time I threw the baseball, my arm would come out and hit a little bundle of nerves right there and send my arm numb. It's called ghost arm. So I went, okay, I can no longer play football or baseball unless I do something about this because I've been hurt. And I experienced a shoulder reconstructive surgery that was the most painful thing I've ever gone through in my life. The surgery was bad. The rehab was worse. But had the surgeons not come and cut open my shoulder with a four-inch incision right here in my shoulder, gone in, repaired my ligaments, put in bolts, and begin to work that back out so I could have full range of motion and not have to worry about my arm popping out again, had they not hurt me, I mean, Think about it. Think about what surgery is. There, a person you've never met before drugs you and then cuts you open. That's what surgery is. It's painful, yet it has to be done in order for us to be healed. And friends, this is true as well in our spiritual life. As Jesus knew this about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that in order to get them to the place he wanted them to, he knew that they wouldn't get there unless they went through pain, unless they went through suffering. And this is true in our own lives as well. And so if there's one thing that you walk away with today, it's this point. I got this from Johnny Erickson Tata, who is uh, an unbelievable gift to the church. She's in her 70s or 80s now, uh, but she was paralyzed at the age of 17 um, as a quadriplegic her entire life, unable to use her arms or her legs. She was a great athlete, was a swimmer, a diver, uh, and had hopes to continue to do that professionally. But one day she dove into a lake, hit her... uh, dove head first, hit her head on the bottom, and it fractured her spinal cord and caused her to be in a wheelchair the rest of her life. 
And she says this, as she's continued to wrestle through God's sovereignty in that act in her life. Why? Why would God cause her just a couple months ago, it was the 50th anniversary of that accident for her. 50 years that she's in a wheelchair, unable to use her arms or her legs. Why would God do that? Either he's unable to stop it, and then he's no longer God. So that's not the case. So why would he do it? And this was her conclusion that she said has shaped her life. She said that God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. That God often allows us to be hurt in order to heal us. That God has this purpose in mind. And this is what we see in our own lives. That God is not passive in our lives or in our suffering. He's very much involved in it allowing us to go through it, knowing that he's using every ounce of it, redeeming it for his glory and for our good. And so we have to ask then the question, if God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves, what does God hate? Well, we know that he hates sin. Sin is what separates uh, his people from him. It is the rebellion against him. But he also hates what sin has brought on with it, pain and suffering and death. God hates it. And friends, even if you look, I, I love this. I love the way Jesus frames this. In chapter 11, verse, uh, if you look at verse 12, as he looks at his disciples, uh, or in verse 11, and looks to his disciples and says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He's fallen asleep. That's Jesus' category for death. Because he knows that, yes, in a moment, I'm going to go and raise him from the tomb, but ultimately Lazarus is going to die again. Right? Lazarus isn't still walking around. But Jesus says every person that experiences death, if you are a Christian, you're just asleep. Because there will be a day whenever Jesus returns and we experience the same resurrection that he did. And so some may sleep for longer than others, but for Christians, death is no longer a category. How incredibly hopeful is that? That it is not the end. That death has in fact been defeated. And that we can now, with Jesus, look and say, you know what, every person that dies as a Christian, we know that they are just asleep for a little while. These are the things that God hates, pain, suffering, and death. So what would, why would he allow that to accomplish what he loves? Well, we have to then ask the question, if that's what God hates, what does God love? What does God love? Well, from this text, we see two things in particular. We see that God loves his children and God loves his glory. God loves his children and God loves his glory. If you look back at five and six, we see that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loved them. And that drove him to do something. It drove him to wait. But why? So why did it drive him to do that? Why did he wait? Well, if we look around even in our own lives, how often do people go, you know what? My life is pretty pain-free and careless right now, and it has just absolutely driven me to the cross. I don't really have a lot of uh, issues going on, and, and it is just, I'm absolutely falling more and more dependent upon Christ every day. That's not true for most of us. I know for me, at least, my tendency is my life starts to get into a rhythm and there's just the normal routine of life, I, be, I can have the tendency to drift. But whenever God has introduced any type of trial or pain in my life, it has driven me to him. Right, that phone call that I got five years ago, 
that my father's heart attacked him and killed him at 59 as he was mowing the yard. In that moment, I began to depend on God in ways that I never had before. It drove me to him. Not only dependence upon him, but it also made me run to my knees. It made me hate sin, and it made me long for heaven. This was really the first time in my life that I began to say, God, I'm so ready for you to come back and fix everything that is wrong in this world. Because up until that moment, I'd kind of lived a charmed life. I'd not really experienced anything difficult. And you know what can happen in those moments? We can begin to become so comfortable, we don't ever want to leave. We begin to look around and things are going well, and we go, you know what? If, if we're honest, if Jesus were to return, we'd be a little bit disappointed. Right? We just got married. Our kids are going to college. We're just having a kid. We just found out we're pregnant. We're, there's so much hope in the future. If Jesus were to return today, oh, can't you just wait a little bit? Just let me get through this exciting stuff in my life, and then you can come back. Right? Our prayer is very different from the Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It then kind of waits. To, it changes to, O Wait, O Wait, Emmanuel, until I'm able to finish the stuff in my life I'm excited about. Friends, when we fall into that, we don't understand what Jesus is bringing with him when he comes back. Because when we do, no matter what our life is, we are praying and longing for him to return, knowing that when he comes, he will bring an end to all death to all sickness, and in this moment, this time where we live in between his two comings, that he will bring perfection with him, and we will live with no barrier between us and him. Sin will be removed, and we will worship him for eternity, being able to see him clearly with all the rest of those who have been redeemed, and we will worship him for eternity and live forever without any pain, any sickness, any tears. They will all be wiped from our eyes. When we understand that, no matter where we are in our lives today, we are praying oh God come today but often if we live comfortable lives we don't tend to pray that but when we experience pain and suffering it's often the first prayer that comes out of our mouth Maranatha come Lord Jesus people in Houston right now I guarantee you are praying Jesus would you come and redeem all that's broken would you come and accomplish all of your purposes And I know that's what it was for me at 25 years old when I got that phone call. For the first time, I began to say, oh God, I'm so ready for you to come back. Because you see, Satan often uses the comforts of this world to remove and deaden our longing for heaven. A friend of mine is a pastor in Washington, D.C., John Joseph. He said this. He said that that Satan is a master anesthesiologist. He uses the comforts of this world to numb our longing for heaven. Satan knows just what he's doing. In a a perfect world, if he were to have complete control, he would have everyone walking around, going to church, greeting one another, being nice, and no one wanting Jesus to come back. Because we become so comfortable with this world that we don't understand who it is we're following. And he numbs and deadens our longing for heaven. But when we experience pain, when God permits us to go through that, he accomplishes what he loves in us by making us more and more into the image of his son, showing us more and more what our true reality is as he shows us and begins to shape us. 
Right? This is what even in Romans chapter 8, and probably the most quoted verse in reference to pain and suffering, Romans 8.28, that we know that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is saying everything, every single moment in your life is going to work for good for those who love him. And so the question we have to ask is, what does God mean by good? What does he mean by working all things to good? Well, Paul tells us and defines it in the very next verse, in verse 29. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what it is in God's definition to be good. Anything in our lives that makes us look more like Jesus. With good things, difficult things, painful things, God is using them all to chip away the parts of us that don't look like Christ and making us more and more into his image. Right? It's like a, a master sculptor, like Michelangelo, who sculpted the statue David over in Florence. I got to see it a number of years ago while I was there in Italy. And it's huge, it's massive, it's beautiful, it's majestic. But Michelangelo said this about the process. He said, every block of stone has a statue inside of it. And it's the task of the sculptor to discover it. So Michelangelo would look at every block and he'd say, David is in there. And it's my job to begin to chip away, take my chisel and my hammer and chip away every bit of that block that doesn't look like David. Until when I'm finished, then there is this perfect statue in front of me. Friends, God does the same in our lives. Every single one of us who've been created in the image of God, for those who are called according to his purposes, he is looking in our lives and using everything in it to chip away the pieces of our lives that don't look like Christ. Some of those things are more painful than others, but often he is using them to make us and conform us to the image of his son. And friends, that is good. Even in the things that's hard. God has a higher perspective of what it is he's looking at. He's looking at it in an eternal perspective, not just in the moment, right? Anybody that has kids knows this. If you gave your children everything they wanted in the moment, how would they turn out? They'd eat candy for breakfast every day and have diabetes at the age of two and a half. But we know as parents, no, I know what is good for you. And my definition of good is different than yours right now because we have a larger perspective. Friends, the difference between us and our children doesn't even come close to the difference between, uh, difference between us and our God. His perspective is so beyond ours. And he looks at us and he says, I'm good and I love you. And I'm working for your good. Every single situation, you can trust me. You can trust me that I'm using and redeeming every single part of your life. And I'm using it to chip away and make you look more and more like the image of your son. And so that's true in pain and suffering, God using every bit of it. It's true in marriage. God often uses our marriages, our spouses. God uses them to kind of chip away and chisel at those parts of us that don't look like Christ. Right? We, what we like to do in marriage is we get in frustrations and arguments and we point a finger and go, oh, this is your fault. God, it's this woman that you gave me. I didn't come up with, that wasn't original. That was said circa like, a long time ago in the beginning. This has been the problem throughout. We like to blame shift and point fingers and say, no, no, this is your fault why I'm so upset. Because of what you're doing, this is all your fault. But here, God is saying, no, in fact, even in your spouse, in your relationship, those parts of you that begin to flare up, what I am doing with your spouse is I am showing you the parts that you need to kill. 
I'm showing you the parts in your own heart, revealing the darkness in your own heart that you need to work on. This isn't your spouse's fault. This is your fault. And I'm using your spouse to chisel away these parts of your heart that flare up and that don't look like Jesus so that you can see them clearly and address them. God is using every single relationship and bit of our life to form us and mold us into the image of his son. That is good because he loves us. He wants us to look like Jesus. So what does God love? He loves his children. And as he loves his children, we see him use suffering in redemptive ways. That suffering makes us fall on Jesus. Suffering makes us run to our knees in prayer. Suffering makes us hate sin because we know that sin is what brought this into the world in the first place. And suffering makes us long for heaven. But secondly, God not only loves his children, but God also loves his glory. Right? We saw this in verse 4, that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he said, this illness does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus is saying, this is my main mission here, that my main objective is to bring glory to God. That was the thing that drove him and everything that he did. It's what drove him to wait here. Both as he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he waited to let them depend on him and go through something they wouldn't have gotten to any other way. Also, he says, I'm going to wait so that God would be glorified through this. Whereas this wasn't just Jesus's mission. This is ours as well. This is our purpose. This is why we were created. Isaiah and Isaiah 43, 7. Again, this is one of those foundational verses that Write it down, memorize it, put it in your Bible to give us why we're here. Why, what is our purpose? Why are we here? Isaiah says, everyone who's called by his name, this is God speaking, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God is saying, each of these people that I've created, I've created them for a purpose, and that's for my glory, so that they would be used and my name would be lifted up. And everything they do, in the great task, whether it's starting a church or moving overseas to be a missionary, and in the mundane tasks, right? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 and says, whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So even in the everyday minute details of our lives, there's ways in which we live that bring glory to God. This is our directive purpose, why we're here. And so God loves his children and he loves his glory. This is what drives Jesus to, in fact, wait and let Lazarus and Mary and Martha go through this situation so that ultimately God permitting what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. Because it's often through suffering as well that God is glorified and he is uh, most magnified as people on the outside look at Christians who go through suffering. Christians who walk through suffering well and faithfully is often the most powerful uh, apologetic that this world has ever seen. There's people on the outside that begin to look in and go, how are they able to walk through this? Obviously with grief and pain, but still with hope. How can they sit in a wheelchair for 50 years and say, God has permitted this in order to accomplish what he loves in me, and this is in fact good? How can he do that? And his glory is spread often by his children walking faithfully through trials and sufferings. We see this even in church history if we look back. Some of the greatest catalysts in church history is whenever Christians were suffering well. Or whenever a plague would hit a huge city in Europe and everyone would evacuate, worried that they were going to catch uh, this disease and die. All of a sudden they began to find Christians were staying back. They were sitting 
at beds with people who are sick. They're bringing food and water. And people began to say, how? How can you put yourself in such danger and live in such a way in the midst of so much pain? And all of a sudden, Christianity began to explode because of how Christians lived in the midst of trials. That it was how God was speaking and yelling to an unbelieving world saying, look at this worldview, look at this truth, that if you come and believe this in which the world was actually created and designed, believe this and you will live in a way that doesn't make any sense because you will begin to see the purpose and design that I have for each and every life. You begin to see the purpose and design I have even for pain and suffering. You'll begin to see that this life is not all that you have. And this is not all that you have to hope for. But there is greater hope that I can bring you and I can offer you. Friends, that's why the uh, quote is often said that it's the blood of the martyrs that's the seed of the church. Whenever people were killed for their faith, it didn't kill the faith. It actually helped it spread as people watched so many go through difficulties. And so even in our own lives today, maybe there's pain, trials, or sufferings we're going through. Friends, it may be that very thing that God wants to use in order to shout his glory to an unbelieving world around us. To be able to begin to draw people to his name. And it's why even in this season as we go through chapters 10, 11, and 12 in John, that we are focusing on evangelism as we continue this evangelism initiative. And we want to begin to be an outward-facing church that even in our pain, even in our trials or our sufferings, that we would see that God is using them for his glory and for our good. And so as we continue on in this evangelism initiative over these next six weeks through this sermon series, remember one of the objectives that we have in this is to identify and pray for three people in your life that aren't Christians or that are just pulled away from the church who have removed themselves and then specifically invite them to church on October 22nd when we start our new sermon series. Now, I can already see and can kind of feel the, the hesitation and the fear of, oh my gosh, three people? Are you kidding me? I don't even know three people who aren't involved in the church. Much like I'm an introvert. You're telling me I have to not only know three people, I have to then talk to them and invite them to church? That's terrifying. Listen, I, I, I completely hear and understand that. I understand entirely, but I want to make sure that we don't let our personalities be a crutch for keeping us from fulfilling the Great Commission. That we are all, introverts and extroverts alike, called to make disciples of all nations. And so while it may look different with different people, uh, I, I want that, that understanding, that burden to drive us then to begin to make relationships. Where if we go, you know what, I don't even know three people, to not sit in that, but to go, okay, what can I do then to begin to create relationships? How can I put my life in such a way and begin to intersect with people's lives who maybe aren't in the church, who aren't Christians, and let it drive to that? Because friends, it doesn't take much. It just takes consistency often. I go to the same barber every couple months, and I've gotten to know him and talk to him every time. He's not a Christian, and we have consistent conversations. And it's just me going to get my hair cut every time. Or the um, waiter that we have for our guys' night out at Buffalo Wild Wings. AJ, he's the man. He is the man. He's the best waiter I've ever had. He's unbelievable. But we ask for him every time we go, every two months. And we've developed a relationship with him. He's not involved in the church, but we've now, through that consistency, begun to know him. The guy or the girl that serves me coffee at the Energy Lab, the coffee shop, over the bike shop at, um, over by Waterfront Park in Claremont. I've just consistently tried to go there and have conversations with them when I'm there. 
It doesn't take much. Don't feel the overwhelming sense of how in the world am I supposed to do this. Just begin to do the regular things you do every day with gospel intentionality. Looking to begin to make those relationships. As we look in kind of these concentric circles, we look at the beginning of this Grace magazine, as we look at our friends, our family, our neighbors, and our coworkers. And often our neighbors are just, it's the, the, the least developed relationships we have. In America, here in the suburbs, we like to build our fences and close our doors. What would it look like just to go and drop some cookies off to your neighbors who are right there and just say, you know what, we've never met before, and I know we've lived here for a year or for 10 years, but I just wanted to drop this off, let you know that I'm here. If you need anything, let me know. And just begin that relationship. Look at the people that God already has in your life. Begin to see them, identify, and pray for them, that God would begin to move in their heart and invite them to church on the 22nd. But I want to make something very clear here as we wrap up, that I am not concerned with just having people in the seats on October 22nd. That is not our goal. And friends, that's not evangelism. But one thing we're hoping through this is that we're going to give a clear gospel presentation, what Jesus has done, why he came here on the 22nd, to be able to help in that process. But what I hope and what my prayer is as your pastor over these next six weeks is not that we will have a crowd on the 22nd, but it is that we as a church will begin to develop and feel a culture of evangelism here within us. That we would all feel individually the burden to fulfill this great commission, to go and make disciples. We begin to say, you know what? I've been called to do that. That's not someone else's job. That's my job. And it would be just a part of the life of our church as we begin to go and make relationships, praying for people, sharing our faith with people, being satisfied in Jesus and wanting to tell others about him, that that would become just normal here at Grace. That is my hope of what the next six weeks will include. Because listen, if we go through the next six weeks and we invite 10 people to church, uh, each one of us, and this place is full on the 22nd, and that's all we do, then listen, we have failed when it comes to evangelism. But if we go through and we begin to feel, no, God has called me to look and take this message to an unbelieving world. He has used me to display his glory, both in my life and in my pain. And so I want to be used. I feel that burden. God, would you use me? And you begin to feel that sense. And you begin to live your life in such a way to accomplish that missional purpose. Then, friends, we have succeeded. My prayer is that this won't just be a six-week thing, but this would set the stage and foundation for the life of our church in the future. That it would become a culture here at Grace to share our faith with people, to know people who aren't Christians, to desire those relationships, to love people, and to pray for them and to do it as a community. That's my hope throughout this process. And the 22nd, we want to be able to help along the way, but that is not the end goal. The end goal here is that we would all become the evangelists that God has called us to be. Remember that quote from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon says that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. I want to make sure that this church is not filled with imposters, but that we would feel that weight, and that God would use us even in our pain and our suffering, because it's often there that God speaks the loudest to those outside the church. All right, so I'll close with this quote from C.S. Lewis again that we shared a few weeks ago. As he wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. That God whispers whenever things are going good, whenever we're convicted in our conscience, he speaks. When we go through suffering, he's shouting to us his goodness and his love, his faithfulness, that he has not left us. And we begin to develop that relationship with him. 
And Lewis closes and says that, that, that our pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That is that often as we walk through that, God is using it to scream to the world and begin to rouse them and say, look at what I have done for you. That I have actually gone through the greatest pain and suffering this world has ever known. Enduring not just physical pain, but the spiritual pain of having the sin of the world placed on me. Dying in their place, taking their punishment. And taking the worst suffering this world has ever seen. And turning it into the greatest good this world has ever seen. What could I do for you? What can God do for us? Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you that we are not left purposeless through this life. God, but you have given us a mission, a mission to glorify your name through making much of Jesus. So I pray that you would give us that heart, you would give us that burden. God, thank you and we praise you that death is not the final word in the Christian's life. God, there is hope we have beyond that. That you have purpose in every single moment of our lives and every suffering and every trial. I pray that you would help us to trust you, to be able to rely on you, to see what you mean by good and by using us to rouse the deaf world around us. Now we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.